0: McMinnville, again. This is Crisscrossing Crossing Science, the podcast that gets its energy from you, the listener. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilberg. And today's title is Remembering the Greatest Gift Your Mother Gave You. Hey, everybody. So next weekend is Mother's Day, hint, hint. And so this is a time, of course, when you reflect back on all the great things your mother has given you. And we thank her by sending flowers or a card or something like that, hint, hint. And so, as we get ready for Mother's Day, hint, hint, we here at Crisscrossing Science decided to remind you of one more thing that your mother gave you, your mitochondria. So, we are replaying an episode from 2019 when Megan Bestwick actually came into the studio with us to talk about mitochondria. Enjoy. Hey, Chad. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing all right. So, today, we've got another special guest star in the studio with us. Yes, Indeed. Dr. Megan Bestwick. She is a biochemist and an expert in mitochondria. Heard of him. Oh, yeah? I've heard of him So when you hear about mitochondria, what's pops in your brain?
1: Well, yeah, if you ask what are mitochondria to an intro biology class, the students will basically leap out of their chairs to try to be the first one to say, the powerhouse of the cell. Oh, yes. So.
0: All right. So we we should probably bring Megan in and explain what that actually means. Yeah. And if there
1: are any interesting things about that or nuances or what have you. Cool. Welcome, Megan. Hello. So, Megan, tell us about mitochondria.
2: Powerhouse of the cell. I would say probably the same thing even in biochemistry, right? Students can't wait to tell you that they're the powerhouse of the cell. But what does that really mean? So it means that, say, when you sit down for dinner and you eat a meal, you ingest all sorts of different nutrients. And really, our central metabolic pathways are interested in breaking down glucose, and getting energy, specifically a molecule called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that then is utilized in all kinds of different cellular processes. So mitochondria is the place where some of these central metabolic pathways are located.
0: Okay, so we eat some food. Yes. So from that we get glucose, which is basically sugar. Yes. Is carbohydrates is that the same thing or is so that...
2: carbohydrates right are combinations of sugars okay that
0: so really makes sense So we, we eat the carbs yes and then that goes directly into our cells.
2: So, yes, in your cells, you have ways to get carbohydrates into them, specifically glucose. But we have transporters for other types of sugars. Pretty much all the sugars that come in will get converted into glucose somehow. Um, They sort of feed into these pathways and end up as some sort of glucose or similar type sugar.
1: And it's also the case that if you are eating like a really low carb diet or something like that, that other kinds of molecules, fats and proteins there are pathways that ultimately convert those into glucose, right?
2: Glucose or have a mechanism to feed into these pathways. Oh, so
0: even if you're drinking coffee with butter in it... Gross. (laughs) You could still get energy from that. Yeah, uh, yes. 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 Okay, but so the glucose itself is not what we can use for energy. You said something about ATP.
2: Right. So this molecule ATP, P stands for phosphate. It has three of them. And so by basically breaking off one of those phosphates, we can transfer energy within cells. So we can make processes that are unfavorable become energetically favorable.
1: Like if you look at diagrams or posters of basically any sort of cellular function, there's ATP doing stuff all over the place, right? So it's driving anything you can imagine where work is being done. ATP is probably the thing that is providing the energy. Okay. Is that true also, say, in plants?
0: Yes.
2: Plants use the same molecule. It provides the energy within cells to perform these energetically unfavorable processes that are essential to cellular function, whether you're a mammal or a plant or fungus like yeast or something like that, right? So this molecule is ubiquitous. Yeah. So, we so all
0: living things are using this. Basically, this is like the currency of the energy for anything That's a anything really living. great way to think about yep. it. The, the ATP is what you need to actually do the stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, so plants, they, they do the whole photosynthesis thing and that's how they're getting their ATP or.
2: That's basically how they're making the carbohydrates. Then the carbohydrates feed into the metabolic pathways in plants. So plants also have mitochondria.
0: Ah, okay. And then mitochondria are the things that, these are specialized organelles that are breaking down glucose into the
1: ATP that the body craves. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 not it's not exactly breaking glucose down into ATP, okay. but like, you know, if you had glucose and then an arrow pointing at the mitochondria and then another arrow pointing at ATP, that's sort of like broadly the three steps, and so I right. think what Megan's going to tell us about here is what is going on in the mitochondria that takes you from glucose and harvests the energy of the glucose molecule and transfers that energy to ATP, right? Yeah. Is that fair enough?
2: That's fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So basically, what it comes down to, how do we make this ATP molecule is, like I said, it has three phosphates. So within the mitochondria, we take a molecule, ADP, that has only two phosphates, and we add another one to it. And to do that, we drive what I think is probably one of the coolest molecular motors, something that we call the ATP synthase. So it's synthesizing ATP from ADP. So we're going from the diphosphate to the triphosphate. To do that, you have to establish what we call a proton gradient. This is where the structure of mitochondria becomes really important. And so it's this what we call dual membrane organelle. So it has two membranes. So it has what we call an outer membrane and an inner membrane. And in between that, those two membranes, we have the clever name of the inner membrane space.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait a minute. Got it. Okay.
2: Okay. (laughs) We have protons, or you may also know them as hydrogen ions, accumulate in that space. And drive this ATP synthase that generates ATP.
0: Hmm. Okay. And so in between these two membranes, there's a bunch of protons and somehow that is creating the ATP.
2: So it's a gradient, right? So you can think you have a lot of protons in the, the inner membrane space between them. And then in the center of the mitochondria, you don't have very many protons. And so we the chemical gradient that forms, the concentrated protons, want to go to where there's not as much. You want to sort of equalize that, right? Sure. So there's a driving force to have the protons go back into the center part of the organelle and back into the center part of the membrane. And they do that through this ATP synthase, this molecular motor that then generates
0: the ATP.
1: And then somehow they push it back out, the protons? Yeah. So the protons flowing from the uh, space, I guess, I mean, are they flowing like down through the middle of the ATP synthase and and are they actually turning some sort of? Yes mechanism? Yes. And, and
2: so so they flow, there's like a rotating portion of this complex that then rotates the actual part where the ATP and the ADP bind. And those sort of changes, those rotations allow for the ATP synthase to go from the ADP, the diphosphate, to the triphosphate.
1: So they slap another phosphate on there.
2: Yeah. So Chad's question was, or Mike's question was, how do the protons get into the inner membrane space? And that's where we go back to the glucose. We have glucose being broken down through several different steps, and we harness that energy being broken down from the glucose into electrons. And electrons are then passed through the electron transport chain. So as electrons are being passed through this electron transport chains, it's pumping hydrogen ions, into the inner membrane space of the mitochondria. That's how we make the proton gradient. That's how we get those hydrogen ions up there, and then they flow back down to where they're less concentrated.
0: Okay, so you're saying that the mitochondria go through some chemical reaction in which they break down glucose. That glucose is then powering a mechanism to move the protons where they want them to be.
2: Essentially, yes.
0: And then when the protons naturally go back, they separate back out, then that is then driving another motor to do something else. Yes. And that motor then
1: is making this ATP. Yes. Okay. Have you ever seen, sometimes I sort of think about this, this is sort of a silly analogy, but when my kids were younger, they had this water table where there's like a tower in the middle and at the top there's this big funnel And at the base of the funnel, underneath the funnel, there's this little water wheel. And so kids will spend hours scooping up water, dumping it into the funnel. And the the water flows down through the top funnel. And as it's flowing down, it's like turning this little wheel, right? And then it's back into the reservoir. And so if you think of as an analogy, the water is the hydrogen ions. Mm -hmm. And the kids scooping up some of that water and putting it into the top of the funnel, those are all of the membrane complexes Pumping hydrogen ions out, dumping it into the inner membrane space, mm-hmm. and then as it flows down through the funnel and turns the water wheel, that would be analogous to the hydrogen ions flowing past the ATP synthase and actually doing some work. Okay. All right. All right. So all living things use ATP. Uh huh. And so
0: for a lot of cells, the purpose of the mitochondria. We all have this organelle in there called mitochondria, which is producing the ATP for us. Yes. Okay. okay. So are are these mitochondria, are they pretty much the same between plants and animals and fungus?
2: Yes. So the structure of mitochondria, I would say, is very consistent between species. There's a few differences sort of in some of the protein complexes, but not major differences so yes, if
0: not. i if I harvested out mitochondria from a plant and some from you, would you be able to somehow know the difference between them?
2: Yes, I would probably not from the protein complexes, but mitochondria have their own DNA actually, and I would be able to what tell- do you mean? So so a lot of people probably don't realize this, but um, mitochondria have their own circular genome. It's a small genome.
0: So I think most people are aware that we have we've got chromosomes and we yes. pass that all down. Yes, that's storing all of our DNA is what we would say.
2: Right. Yeah. So,
0: but
1: you're saying that's not all the DNA. There's not, more DNA. Yes. but what you're talking about is in the nucleus.
2: Right. So when we think about passing genes on to our children and things like that, we typically are thinking about passing on the genes, the chromosomes that are inside our nucleus, our nuclear DNA. Okay. But there's also DNA within mitochondria as well. And so that also gets passed on to children, but from their mother only. So it's a maternally inherited DNA. And so...
0: So th- this reminds me a little bit of the animal reproduction episode that we had. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully Kathleen will hear this and, <laughs> and link to it because she listens to the show. We learned. Anyway, so from the animal reproduction episode, we were talking about how when animals reproduce, then they split the nucleus. You split up the chromosomes and yeah, all that. And, and meiosis. that's all in the nucleus. But we also talked about how the egg has more extra stuff in it. And the, the sperm itself, the gamete that is yeah. swimming around... It's much lighter. It's designed to be able to move from one yeah. thing to another.
1: Yeah. So the egg is going to be half of the full nuclear genome complement, mm-hmm. and it's also going to be chock full of mitochondria, as well as a whole bunch of nutritional goodness that can be broken down and used to generate ATP in those mitochondria.
0: Ah, okay. And,
1: and the sperm is sort of like a stripped-down race car. All it has is the nuclear genome. So no no mitochondrial contribution from the sperm.
0: And so that's why the title of the show is The Gift from Your Mom, then. Exactly. Because yes. we're only getting the mitochondria from our mother's side. That is correct.
1: Yeah. So you can use that to sort of follow matrilines. Sorry, is that too nerdy? That was M- a bit nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, can, you, you can use that to follow mother-daughter, mother-daughter relationships through generations. Oh, okay. And as far as males go we are a dead end for the mitochondrial dna that we inherited from our own mothers but you could for instance
0: do a mouth swab and so my brothers and i would all have the exact same mitochondria
1: dna assuming you're from the same mother yes yes Yes. Uh uh-huh
2: but you will not pass on your mitochondrial dna to any children no matter how hard you try yeah it will not
0: happen And so is that useful in, say, forensics?
2: So they use it in forensics for several reasons. One is that you have a lot of mitochondrial DNA, actually. So do you guys know how many copies of your chromosomes you have in your nucleus?
0: How many copies of each chromosome? How many
2: copies of each chromosome do you have in your nucleus?
0: I always assume just one. You have two. Two copies of my DNA in each cell?
2: You have two copies of each chromosome in each cell, if you're not dividing.
1: Yeah, you knew. you knew this. Like... When we are talking about having 23 chromosomes, but we've got two copies of each chromosome.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Right.
2: Okay. So if we go to the mitochondria now, though, these are much smaller than chromosomes, but you have way more. So we're talking like hundreds to thousands thousands of copies. In some cells it's not uncommon to have 10,000 copies of your mitochondrial DNA within mitochondria. So per lot-
1: mitochondria? Yes. Holy cow. And then there are there are many mitochondria per cell.
2: There's many mitochondria per cell. And so I
1: Wait, hold on. There's
0: many? I've always looked in a biology textbook and they had one nucleus, one little squiggly thing which they said was mitochondria. And then some other garbage. And some other squiggly garbage around. That's
2: exactly how I describe the cell. Yes.
0: (laughs) 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 All right. Well that's accurate then.
2: Mitochondria everything
0: else. Other other stuff. (laughs)
2: Other stuff. Other stuff. But I always
0: pictured it as one mitochondria. Nope. Per cell.
2: No, we have lots of mitochondria. And actually, so in textbooks, we always see them as a, like these nice little beans. They're not really little beans. They're sort of these long tubular networks. So they're actually quite significant in size. So because of that, you can actually have lots and lots and lots of copies of mitochondrial DNA. Hmm. So getting back to forensics, one of the reasons that mitochondrial DNA is so useful is because there's actually a lot of it present and it's easy to isolate that mitochondrial DNA because when you isolate uh, total DNA from a cell, you only have two copies of your nuclear DNA, right? But you have lots and lots and lots and lots of copies of your mitochondrial DNA. So if you're looking for a specific marker or something within that DNA, forensically, easier to do that.
1: What do you mean by a marker?
2: Right. So in forensic analysis, they're looking at specific DNA regions to compare between, say, DNA that they might find at a crime scene with suspects, or if you're trying to identify someone, you would take the person's DNA that you're interested in that and compare that same marker, that same DNA sequence, to other DNA samples that you might be interested or wanting to compare that to.
0: So when they're doing DNA tests, they're not looking at the entire genome? No.
2: So that's very time-consuming, very expensive. So forensic analysis looks at specific regions of the DNA and compares that. So we think that our DNA is all very similar, like my chromosome one is very similar, maybe Chad's and yours, but there's actually quite a lot of variation in it, and that's true for mitochondrial DNA as well. There is variability in it between all of us. Mm. And so we can use those small differences to tell say whether or not i came from the same mother as my brother right so you can test for that so it has sort of the same features that you could use for nuclear dna but because you can get so much more of it from a small sample that's why forensic analysts like to use that
0: Hmm. oh because it is possible to grow more it is of the dna You, you
2: can amplify DNA. And so if you have more that you start with, you can amplify more. But it's also a copy, what we call a copy number issue as well, right? So if you only have two copies of a gene or a marker um, that you might be interested in in the nuclear DNA, whereas if you have, you know, hundreds from a mitochondrial DNA sample, it's easier to determine that marker.
0: Okay. So... Because you have so much more mitochondrial DNA in any given cell, make you don't necessarily sense. have to amplify
1: that, so that's you're yeah. cutting out a step and you're... so Okay, so it's easier it to on. deal with. Or because there are so few copies of nuclear DNA, and if the specimen has been sitting out or something or in conditions that are not good for its preservation, they can tend to degrade and break apart and, in ways that make them not useful. Mm. But because you have so much more mitochondrial DNA even though it might be degrading sort of at the same rate the chances mm-hmm. that at least some of the necessary regions where the sequence is will still be intact.
0: 23 mm. and me and programs like that are they also looking at mitochondrial DNA or are they doing the nuclear?
2: I think they look at both because I believe that in like the reports that you get, you get some information about your maternal heritage that would come from mitochondrial DNA. And so because there's
0: that's a pure line. And, you, you know, exactly. Right.
2: And so you can trace a lot of things through mitochondrial DNA.
0: Mm,
1: OK. What's the functional significance of so many copies of DNA in the mitochondria?
2: So you can make a lot of electron transport chain in
0: ATP synthase
1: because it's actually being transcribed and translated into more of the...
0: Oh, so do the mitochondrial DNA... So what I've learned recently, actually from this show, is that with your nuclear DNA, at least, you go from DNA to RNA to protein Yep. most of the time. So are there RNA mitochondria?
2: Yes. So it's the same exact process that takes place within the mitochondria. So you have the mitochondrial DNA. It encodes for some key subunits. the electron transport chain proteins and so within the mitochondria the dna there goes through the same process that we see with the nuclear dna it gets transcribed so the dna gets turned into rna and makes the proteins and so we have lots of copies of the mitochondrial dna because sometimes need lots of electron transport chain and atp synthase to make a lot of atpx's and so In tissues that require a lot of energy, we see more copies of mitochondrial DNA, so we can Mm. make more of these protein complexes.
0: And in this case, the proteins that they're making are the actual proteins that are doing
1: the chemical reactions. Yes. that are the electron pumps. Yes. Okay. And so mitochondria, they've got their own ribosomes. They
2: got have their own ribosomes. Where
1: translation is happening. Yep.
2: They have their own. So transcription is done by something that we call a polymerase. They have their own polymerase that uh, reads the DNA and makes the RNA. So they, they have everything that they need, everything within that compartment to make those proteins.
1: They're kind of like little tiny cells all on their own, living within a bigger cell. They like make copies of themselves kind of on their own schedule too, right? Yes.
2: So I think oh. they can divide and they can make more of themselves. They can replicate their DNA. Yes. So they're like little tiny cells.
0: All on their own. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So how do these little buggers get in there? You know, where
1: where did they come from?
2: So the idea behind where mitochondria come from, the idea is that a bigger cell sort of engulfed them.
1: Yeah, so the endosymbiosis theory is that there was this other cell that was just kind of starting to have this little aggregation of its genome inside of a n- nucleus, and that engulfed this other bacterial cell, and rather than breaking it down, it didn't break it down, mm-hmm. and instead, it just that little tiny bacteria cell just kept living and churning out all of this ATP from its activity, mm-hmm. and... That cell did so much better that it made it's the one
2: that survived, yeah, basically. Yeah. Hmm. And so I talked about how in the mitochondria there are proteins that come from the nucleus that the DNA retained some of these genes for certain proteins in the electron transport chain. And so part of the endosymbiosis theory is that the bacteria that was originally engulfed, it sent a lot of its DNA to the nucleus of the engulfing cell of the bigger cell, right? And so it wanted all of the DNA in the nucleus, right? But there were some of them that it just it couldn't reside in the nucleus. And that's how we ended up with the mitochondrial DNA.
0: So you mentioned that mitochondrial DNA is a ring rather than a line. Yep. yep. Like and is that a factor? Is that what helped it survive?
2: No, so that, I would say that is a characteristic of it coming from a bacterial cell. So bacteria actually have circular DNA instead okay. of the linear DNA like what we have in our nucleus. And so one of the reasons that this theory is so strong is actually that a lot of the processes that take place within mitochondria are more similar to bacteria than other sort of eukaryotic cells or cells that have a nucleus. And so there's a lot of things within mitochondria that look more bacterial and less like other order cells.
1: And aren't there features of the inner membrane that are obviously bacterial yes. and then the outer membrane? looks more eukaryotic. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. And so remember at the very beginning we were talking there's that inner membrane space, the outer membrane and the inner membrane. Yeah. So that inner membrane is the holdover from this bacteria that mm-hmm. used to be its, you know, its external membrane and the outer membrane is a holdover from the little vesicle that formed when it originally engulfed. Okay. And and so it seems like plants did a lot of this, right? They also
0: engulfed photosynthesis thing
1: yeah so what's cool is at the very base of the eukaryote tree so all those living things that have a nucleus so this would be all animals all fungi all plants lots of other single-celled things that have a nucleus they underwent this primary endosymbiosis of a purple bacteria that gave rise to the mitochondria, and then all other eukaryotes descended from that. Hmm. And so that's why, as Megan was talking about, you know, it doesn't matter if you're looking at plants or fungi or animals, that their mitochondria are all the same. Hmm. It's because we share them by common descent. One of those lineages underwent an additional endosymbiotic event and what it endosymbiosed was this tiny little photosynthetic bacteria that's related to cyanobacteria. And that is what became the chloroplast. And then that lineage of eukaryotes went on to give us the plants. Hmm. So you're right that plants did this, but they did it an additional time and scarfed up something that was doing photosynthesis.
0: So, scarfing up cells—that's only happened twice, or is this a more common thing?
1: It's probably happened numerous times. Okay. Yeah. But the thing that became the mitochondria proper—that is something that all eukaryotes share hmm. by common descent. Yeah. Okay.
2: And that's why they're like I said. There's slight variation, but the general structure. The mitochondrial DNA, the electron transport chain, the ATP synthase, like all of that is common between all eukaryotes, all cells with a nucleus.
0: That makes a good deal for the cell and for the mitochondria, right? Yep. Mitochondria is getting fed all the stuff it needs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the bigger cell is then also... It's able to focus only on all the other things it needs to do. It, it doesn't have to
1: focus on producing the ATP anymore. It doesn't
2: have to make this high-energy molecule.
1: So it was just this incredibly beneficial partnership. thing. Yeah, partnership. Hmm. Yeah. Sure. I was just going to say that one of the things that I think is just one of the most interesting and almost poetic things about mitochondria is that every single one of the cells of your body is chock-full of of these little little free agents almost that are actually more closely related to bacteria than they are to you. Hmm. Like most of your DNA, most of the DNA in your body inside the cells is mitochondrial. And it shares like if you were to create a family tree, that is more closely related to bacteria. Hmm. Does that do anything for you? It gives me chills.
0: And you're saying that the mitochondria can multiply on their own. Yeah. yeah. And so these chills are multiplying. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> See, I had to work too hard for that. But... <laughs> it's a long walk. It's a long walk. You better shape up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else we should know about mitochondria?
2: So what I, I guess what I would say is that one of the things that I find most interesting about them is that they're known as the powerhouse of the cell. But there's all kinds of other things that happen there too. I feel like they're so central to cellular life. There's so many things that take place within them. Not only are they so important for making this ATP, they're important for making the basic molecule that moves oxygen around our bodies. They have all these other really important functions within cells and within our bodies. They're related to immunity. They have just all kinds of other implications as we're sort of understanding more about these little compartments in our cell. And I just think that they're absolutely fascinating because they have this central role in metabolism, but becoming really clear that they're just a really a central player in cellular function. So
1: I have another question that are there any syndromes or health problems related to mitochondrial problems? How do those manifest? And are are there some that we might be familiar with?
2: There's probably several that you're familiar with. Deficiencies in mitochondria target what we call high energy tissues so if you think about it what are some of the tissues in your body that require the most energy, right? So muscle, always moving. It requires a lot of ATP for muscles, right? And so when we have defects in mitochondria, we see a lot of muscle defects. So you might've heard of things like myopathies, but those are a lot of times deficiencies in mitochondria. Our central nervous system, that's another one that requires a lot of energy, a lot of this ATP molecule. So we see a lot of neurological disorders, a lot of, Disorders related to the central nervous system. And then also things like our ears, our hearing, and our eyes. We're always listening, right? So there are certain disorders that are related to hearing. There's disorders related to your eyes because there's a lot of ATP and that's being utilized there too. So those are some sort of general examples Typically, when we have mutations to mitochondrial DNA, depending on the mutation, they're not viable typically. And when we do have mutations to our DNA, a lot of these disorders are related to those high energy tissues, but are childhood diseases. So, a lot of people who have mutations in mitochondrial DNA typically don't live even into their teens. And so there's a lot of institutes at hospitals and children's hospitals that are interested in understanding these mutations, understanding these diseases to try and help those kids.
1: Yeah. What about this business of three parent embryos, right? So you've got like nuclear DNA from the Mm -hmm. father, Mm -hmm. nuclear DNA from one woman, one female, but then that... Is what, put into a different egg?
2: It's put into a different egg that has mitochondrial DNA from a, a second mother, basically. A second mother. A different woman than where the nuclear DNA comes from. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that's how you get three parents, is you take the nucleus of a fertilized egg from two parents and you put that into a different cell. And what we call an anucleated cell, or a cell that no longer has its nucleus, and you can inject that nucleus into
1: that cell. Is that one possible way? I mean, the potential ethics aside, is that one potential thought about how one might treat for mitochondrial, some, some mitochondrial mutation
2: diseases? Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay.
1: Well, thank you,
0: Megan. Yes, thank yeah, you. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, this is fun.
2: Yeah, this was really fun.
0: This episode of Criss-Crossing Science was recorded in the KSLC studios on the beautiful campus of Linfield College. Rodio Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, subscribe to the podcast and you will download the latest episode as soon as it actually becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating. That will help other people find our podcast. If you have a question, either about this particular episode or an idea for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening.